And for anyone who's a leader of people, you know, you really want to set up an internal framework where you understand what what the drivers are, right? And you're not seeking external, you know, you're not relying on on external factors and um, folks, you know, outside yourself to to drive your your motivation. I because I, I think you can be successful short term with with that framework, but long-term success it's it's just a house of cards it's it's going to fall down eventually so i think the sooner you can recognize that and and build a, a framework that or a foundation that really enables you to to access you know the 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 motivation uh, uh to me that's that's one of the most important drivers of long-term success Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Kristen Holmes. Kristen has spent her entire career and much of her life in high-performance environments. In college, she was a three-time All-American and two-time Big Ten Conference Athlete of the Year at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball. She was a seven-year member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team and one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in 13 seasons and a national championship at Princeton University. She also founded a successful nationwide field hockey camp and clinics business and ran it for 16 years. Today, Kristen is the Vice President of Performance Science at Whoop, a consumer technology company that empowers its users to perform at a higher level through a deeper understanding of their bodies and daily lives. Her role is to drive thought leadership at Whoop by using a meta approach to better understand individual and team performance across military, sports, and medicine. In this interview, we get into Kristen's sports background, her coaching philosophy and career, WHOOP, and all things performance optimization. And so, without further ado, my interview with Kristen Holmes. So let's start by getting into your background a little bit. Where did you grow up? So I moved around a ton growing up, but I was born in North Adams, Massachusetts, uh, so I, okay. I definitely I was a New England girl, but then we moved down to Tennessee. I lived there for like four years. Then we moved to France and then we moved back to wow. Maine and then back down to Massachusetts. So yeah. And then I went to school at not Iowa. I uh, lived in New Jersey for a long time and now I'm kind of gone full circle. I'm back in Massachusetts where I started. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of moving. What, yeah. what was driving all of that moving? Was it like your parents? jobs moving around or what was it? Yeah, my, my dad's job. He's a CFO and uh, he just had opportunities to kind of go to different plants. He worked for a, a really large computer capacitor uh, company. They produce uh, capacitive chips and uh, yeah, he just had opportunities to to kind of move and advance his career. And so we just were just kind of tagged right along with him. <laughs> <laughs> Was that was that hard for you, or yeah, describe I, I how think, that? Yeah, moving is 
is interesting. You know, you kind of have to figure out how to reintegrate into your, or to integrate into your new environment. And, you know, there's different, there's the geography, there's, you know, obviously just meeting new kids, you know, as younger. So there's that, I guess, complexity that, uh, you know, you kind of have to figure out to na- how to navigate. But I, I definitely, you know, looking back, I think it was helpful, it, you know, being able to kind of assimilate to, to a new circumstance and figure out how to, how to kind of fit in and how to operate in, in new environments. I, I think it, it, you develop a different type of awareness and, and a different uh, understanding of, of how to connect with people uh, for different, from different backgrounds. You know, Massachusetts, I was very, I was just an infant or a toddler in Massachusetts. And then I moved to Tennessee and, you know, you've got different accents, you, got, you know, you the Southern right. accent, you know, the just, you know, there's just like, you don't realize how much is, is, is different, but, um, but yeah, that Tennessee was actually really interesting because that's when I became obsessed with sports. So that was kind of a, okay. kind of a fun place to be. We, we lived right outside of Knoxville. So I had exposure to Pat Summit and her just amazingness and, and the, the basketball team there. And it was just like a really kind of sporty spot to be in as a as a as a youngster and and that got me like pretty fired up about the possibilities for just women in sports generally so it's kind of a cool a cool opportunity and then France was really interesting I went to uh a, you know a French-speaking school and didn't speak a lick of French so that was interesting <laughs> for so as I tried to figure that out um so that had a lot of challenges um and then I moved halfway you know halfway through high school so you know that was uh that was probably the biggest challenge, but it turned out well because I, I moved from Maine to Massachusetts. So just from a sports perspective, had way more exposure to different colleges. And, and that opened up my, um, I think, the, the you know, possibilities for, you know, different, being able to play in different, different locations, different parts of the country. So, so every move, while it was challenging, I, I think it, it obviously gave me uh, a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise had. So. Right, right. And so were sports and athletics a big part of your family kind of overall when you were growing up? Yeah, my dad played football. He was a wide receiver at Nebraska. So, and oh, wow. Yeah, so he, he was definitely on the, the kind of team side of sports. And my mom was on the individual side. She was a competitive gymnast and during her, uh, you know, kind of youth and, and high school actually had a I believe a couple Olympians on her gymnastics team. So she had, it was very competitive and she's a swimmer and dancer. So she was kind of the other side of the uh, very artistic and, right. um, and, and my dad was very analytical. So yeah, they're like <laughs> complete polar opposites, but, um, yeah. but yeah, it gave me a, a nice kind of, I think a pretty well-rounded view of just uh, athletics in general, but, uh, but yeah, that, you know, sports was always uh, definitely a, a part of, my growing up and um my dad you know super he was really hands-on with my brother and that didn't work out so well so he's really hands-off with me and and that (laughs) and I guess when your parents aren't telling you to do something you end up wanting to do it more so I was really really (laughs) into sports and um but yeah I was my dad uh you know we were always playing in the in the yard and you know throwing the football around and I was you know he was drawing roots on his hand and so I was always running roots for, you know, years and years and years. <laughs> We'd play tennis together and basketball. So yeah, my dad was a, a huge influence on the sports side for sure. That's great. And which were the sports that you gravitated towards more? Yeah, well, definitely basketball. You know, when, when I was four, my dad 
tells me I asked for a professional basketball and to have my ears pierced. So that was at four years old. I was, uh, I was already thinking about, about sports, um, but also one of my ears pierced. So um, (laughs) kind of funny, but, but yeah, I definitely, from a very young age, I I really did love team sports. I love the camaraderie. I I loved, um, you know, this idea of, of kind of you know, there are a lot of moving parts on it on a team and, and having to rely on one, one another, I thought was just kind of a really cool aspect to, to team sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely gravitated to, to team, team sports. Uh, it was always a nice balance where, you know, you kind of go from a, a team perspective where you have less control, you know, obviously, and then you go to an individual sport where you have all the control. And I think being able to kind of toggle back and forth from that was a really cool experience and, sure. great, and just great for me as, as a younger athlete, you know, having to navigate just the different perspectives, you know, for team and individual. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's interesting kind of like, like you said, from a kind of mental development perspective to be able to have both experiences on both individual as well as team. Um, I know for me, I didn't, I preferred the individual sports. I just didn't really gel that well in the team environment, but um, yeah, I think if I might've stuck around. It would have been, I don't know, maybe helpful, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think, I think with team sports, it just all depends on who's on your team, right? <laughs> and your coach. I think your coach obviously is really influential mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, so some team experiences can be super positive, but they can also be not so positive. So I think it all is uh, your early experiences, I think definitely influence, you know, your overall outlook on on what it's like to be part of a team. Right, sure. sure. And so fast forwarding a, a bit here, you ended up playing both field hockey and basketball in college? I did, yeah. I, I played, so I, I walked on to the basketball team going into my senior year in college. I uh, played, I was recruited to play both field hockey and basketball, but focused on field hockey because I was, I made the U.S. national team, uh, uh, I guess, midway through my, my freshman year. So that kind of took basketball off the table and, and there was an Olympics in there. So I, I was really kind of focused on, on, uh, on field hockey and, and mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, being a part of that Olympic cycle. So uh, I wasn't able to actually play basketball until, until my senior year, um, okay. you know, post Olympics. So, yeah, but it was, it, it's uh, definitely, it would have been a challenge had I not made the U S national team. I, I would have been able to, to play both, but uh, for, for four years, you know, I would have to, you know, obviously come into the basketball season a little bit later, but, uh, but that was kind of all, all in, all organized on the, on the front end, but just making national team kind of took that off the table for my first few years. Right. I didn't realize that field hockey is an Olympic sport. It is. Yeah. One of the, one of the earlier ones. Okay. (laughs) How is it? It's actually the most watched sport in the world, but folks don't realize behind soccer. Really? That's fascinating. (laughs) I know. I think it's because there's such a huge population in India and Pakistan. I see. Uh, play. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's on every continent and, you know, certainly more popular than football or ice hockey or, you know, baseball or any of the sports that uh, we have here in the U.S. Right. Right. And so because you were focusing he- more heavily on field hockey was basically your your training when, while you were in school, all three or all two semesters, um, focused on like field hockey instead of basketball, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I really, I mean, I would play pickup every now and again. Uh, you know, I was 
really good friends with a couple, you know, with the, with both the, the athletes on the men's and women's basketball team. So, you know, every now and again, I'd, I'd go out and like shoot some hoops with those, those guys and gals, but, but yeah, generally speaking, like all my energy and focus was, you know, dedicated to, to field hockey. Um, of course, I'll, well, when I, you know, when it was time to start playing basketball, I, I was very, very fit. So that was helpful. <laughs> Go, you know, th there's a, a lot of similarities in terms of just the footwork and, um, you know, the, the aerobic and basketball is obviously mostly anaerobic and um, field hockey is, is a, a bit aerobic uh, just as a midfielder, but, um, but generally also anaerobic. So, you know, you're using many of the same energy systems as you would um, for field hockey. So a lot of that carried over and made the transition to basketball uh, from a, just from a, kind of a fitness perspective, uh, quite easy. Right. So did you end up going to the Olympics? I didn't. Um, my, my real shot, uh, so I was still very young on, on that team and, okay. uh, I was the first alternate. So it was, it was pretty sad cause I, I, I just, I just missed the team, uh, but did basically everything, that the team would do leading up to the village. So it definitely was a little painful, you know, being kind of in it, but not, sure. if you know what I mean. And just kind of, you know, not wanting anyone to get injured, but at the same time, knowing that if someone did, I was right there. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, it was cool. Cause I did get to be, you know, I, I kind of felt, I mean, I was on the squad, you know, which was, which was awesome, but, um, but it's definitely not, you know, the full Olympic experience. And, and then we didn't qualify for Sydney. Uh, and that's when I was really established on the team. And, you know, I think barring any injuries or anything like that, I, I would have been on that, on that team. So it was a little, yeah, it was a, a bit sad uh, just cause that was really the, this idea of making it to, you know, the, the Olympics was kind of the bookend of, of my, my day, you know, the first thing I thought of when I woke up in the morning and the last thing I thought of but, you know, before going to bed and, you know, all of my choices and decisions and you know, everything that happened during the day really revolved around just, you know, putting myself in a position to, to make that dream come true. So, right. so it, was a, it was a little tough, like when you, when you don't realize it, but, um, but yeah, it was uh, really fun to play on the U S national team. I, I just loved it and learned so much and uh, yeah. And, and continued out, you know, playing after college. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, that's interesting. And then as an aside, did have you watched or heard of the the documentary Weight of Gold? I haven't seen that yet. I cannot wait to watch it though. <laughs> and you know, and I and I, I obviously just reading the headlines, I, I kind of understand where they're going with it, but just this it's uh it's it's not an easy path obviously. Uh, and I, and I yeah. think for athletes, you know, and I, I wouldn't obviously put myself in any remote kind of similar category to Michael Phelps, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, but just the, the kind of, um, challenges that are associated or wrapped up, you know, in, you know, with your identity and self-worth and, and kind of performance outcomes and, you know, the, the pressure and the, and the stress and, having, you know, such a singular focus, you know, it, it obviously has consequences and, um, yeah, I'm really, I, I can't wait to watch it. Was it, was yeah. it great? But it was so good. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wish, I think it could have been made into like a mini series or like a docu-series like they did with the last dance. I think they could have been yeah. a little longer, but, um, 
what they were able to do in that hour was was really good. So definitely recommend it. Great. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. And so back when you played in college, um, did you receive any coaching around like mental performance or nutrition or was it like solely focused on the sport and the physical aspects of it? Uh, during college, it was mostly focused on the technical and, and tactical and physical aspects of the, of the sport, uh, less on the mental side and nutrition side. Uh, but in the back end of my college career on the U.S. national team, they started incorporating more of the, the mental side of, of the game. So we were really into visualization. We did a ton of that. Uh, and, you know, on the nutrition side, it, we did get information. But, it, you know, looking back, it was just like all the wrong information. You know, it was, it was right. very much centered around low carbohydrate uh, or sorry, high, you know, high carbohydrate, low fat. And, you know, just they didn't consider really kind of quality and, and timing and, you know, all the things that we're, we're starting to understand now about nutrition uh, definitely was not, it was just basically whatever the trend was at the moment. Um, so, yeah. So looking, looking back on, on kind of some of the performance elements, you know, outside of just the technical and tactical, my gosh, we left so much on the table, you know, just by doing many of the wrong things or not focusing on the right things, but um but yeah, it, it's been it's been fun just over the last you know decade and a half, kind of unpacking some of that and and learning you know what does that performance kind of lifestyle look like and how how can that enhance the you know what's happening on on the field. So that's that's been kind of an interesting uh, journey over the last last ten years or so. Right. And so looking back on your years as a collegiate athlete, what are your biggest biggest takeaways or lessons learned from that experience? I would say probably outcome disassociation, um, you know, just uncoupling like my self-worth from performance outcomes is probably the biggest thing. And, and it, you know, it's so hard when you get so much attention and feedback when you're playing well. Um, and, and when you have a great game and you score, you know, a lot of points or you, you know, are shut down and the opposition defensively or, you know, and then, when you don't play well, you don't get any of that. So, so just to, to understand that, okay, I, I can't, my self-worth, like how I feel about myself cannot be wrapped up in how I perform, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, and that's all, it's really hard to uncouple that, frankly, uh, you know, especially for a younger athlete uh, who's trying to perform at a high level consistently. You know, I think, I think that's one of the biggest challenges in, in kind of, uh, you know, top level collegiate athletics is, you know, helping athletes understand that, you know, that, that is, that's, it's a part of your identity and it, it's a big part, but, you know, performance outcomes are, you know, do, do, are not a measure of your, of your self-worth. So helping athletes understand how to navigate, you know, uh, that is, I, I think a, a big role of a, of a, of a collegiate co coach ensuring that the resources are there and, and that, you know, there's a framework of, of how to think about that. So, you know, I think that was kind of a constant uh, struggle during my four years and, and something that I, I learned uh, by the time I, I got out, frankly, or uh, fortunately, um, that, that, that that's something that I can, that, that I need to disassociate, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to perform consistently and, and stay focused on the right things, because it can, it can shut you down pretty quickly. 
Um, yeah. And, and then I think the other thing I learned is that, you know, happiness is, is very much, you know, internal. It's something that I can kind of control and, uh, you know, with, with the right, like mental framework. Um, so I definitely was very into kind of psychology, uh, before it was really trendy. I actually studied political science, but I, I was always really interested in just the, the mental side. And it's probably because I didn't have a lot of exposure to it, but I realized how core that was to performance. Like when I, felt good psychologically and, and, you know, I felt in, in kind of control and I was, you know, making good choices and, you know, that all seemed to correlate positively to, you know, outcomes on the field and, and how I felt physically. So I, I started to kind of put those pieces together. And so I, I definitely was, you know, reading, you know, all the, all the psychology books that were, were coming out and, you know, and just realizing that, okay, I, I actually am, very much in control of my internal state. Um, you know, I didn't really understand the, the pathways to that yet. Like I, I didn't really, I wasn't into mindfulness or meditation. I did some visualization as I mentioned, but, um, but I think just the realization in, in college that, you know, I'm very much in, in control of my internal state and, 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 you know, happiness is, is actually very much internal. Something I can control was I think probably one of the, the biggest, biggest lesson. Uh, yeah. And then probably the third thing was just that, you know, my habits will accumulate, you know, and either help me <laughs> or not help me. Um, so right. I, I definitely had, and I carry that with me today. And I, I always say this, you know, there's no neutral actions, but I, I think I, I realized that in, in college, you know, when I would see, you know, teammates make certain choices and, you know, people around me make certain choices and how that actually, you know, how the, the impact of those choices, I guess, I, it, it was amazing to me how, how unaware folks were, you know, that, that they didn't seem to correlate their choices with what was happening in school or what was happening in their sport. And, um, you know, so I, I was always just acutely aware of that like dynamic and, um, and, and I think just observing it and, you know, part of it, I didn't really drink in college alcohol. So I, I think that gave me a very, very different perspective to kind of be an observer of, of, Right of kind of choices and in, in a way that I think a lot of people just get kind of swept up in whatever's happening around them. But I always had, uh, you know, I, I think because I was I was quite focused on, you know, achieving certain goals. Like I, I definitely had a, a very different perspective and and just was very in tune with just how my habits were kind of helping me or, or not helping me. So I think those are the three things that I I learned and and that I've kind of taken with me um, throughout my life so far <laughs> yeah yeah i love i love all those especially the one the first one the outcome disassociation i think is is how you put it because when you're kind of performing performing really well like it kind of feeds you and you kind of want more of that you know applause and praise but when you do badly like you don't want any of that and you're just kind of you're you're chasing that that next performance so it can kind of almost take you over um if that's the right way to put it so um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, and it's influences, it, I think too, like, just to like unpack that even further, you know, there's the, when you think about motivation, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic, I, I definitely, you know, that's, a, that's another one, you know, just 
or understanding that I think is important for, for coaches just generally. Uh, and for anyone who's a leader of people, you know, you really want to set up an internal framework where you understand what, what the drivers are, right. And you're not seeking external, you know, you're not relying on, on external factors and, um, folks, you know, outside yourself to, to drive your, your motivation. I, cause I, I think you can be successful short-term with, with that framework, but long-term success, it's, it's just a house of cards. It's, it's going to fall down eventually. So I think the sooner you can recognize that and, and build a, a framework that, or a foundation that really enables you to, to access you know, the, the, the motivation, uh, uh, to me, that's, that's one of the most important drivers of long-term success. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And so while you're in college, what did you think you wanted to do for a career? Well, I was, I majored in political science. I minored in French cause it was an easy A cause I speak French, fluent French. Oh, you're right. <laughs> and I also minored in, um, in, it's going to sound crazy in anthropology, but, um, but yeah, I, I, so I was kind of really interested in, in just human behavior and I loved international politics and just the, the dynamic of negotiation and understanding, you know, how to, how to come to consensus. And, uh, you know, I, I think politics is, so it's so interesting to me on on so many levels but uh yeah so i found that really fascinating um and then i had kind of i was really interested in psychology um in physiology as well just for being an athlete so but yeah that's what i ended up majoring in and then i did all of my postgrad work was in was in psychology i thought maybe i'd you know want to go into law and, and politics and you know i kind of had that running in the background but that I realized that I'm like that. Mm, that's a really hard career path, and it was a little less uh, tangible to me. But um, I, I just became really interested in in kind of these this concept of performance education, and um, so that's all. Of everything after college was was centered around uh, around around performance um, and psychology and physiology. Mm-hmm. And so, so where does that then lead you after you graduate? Yeah, so I had I was still playing on the national team uh, for many years after I graduated, and I was also I also started coaching at the University of Iowa. So I, okay. I coached and played for three three years. Um, finished up my playing career, and then um, and and actually during that three year span at the University of Iowa, when I was I was coaching and playing on the national team, I I met these two PhD students who were working on. Uh, really kind of this performance science concept. It was before anyone really started like thinking or talking about performance science, but they were basically trying to understand, you know, the physiological and psychological kind of factors that influence performance. And we started working on models and I basically became kind of, I uh, started taking graduate courses at, um, uh, at the University of Iowa in, in psychology department and just really got into Got, got into that and and was working helping uh, I was doing a bunch of data collection for their PhD and just became a research assistant and uh, and and basically that that kind of was the springboard I think that really got me into performance science and and wanting to 
really understand on a, on a deeper level, you know, how physiology, physiology and, and psychology work together to, um, you know, to, to influence mindset, you know, arousal levels, uh, and, and then inattentional capacity, energy production, motivation, all that. And, and really the whole thesis behind the work that we did was, was very much around this concept of performance as a choice, right? If we understand the factors that actually influence our performance and our performance levels, we can then build a framework to control for those factors and, and really dictate our levels of performance. So that was kind of a, a really fun, uh, I just feel so grateful that I, I met these two folks and, and I was able to, uh, you know, go down this, this path that really ended up being, I think my calling in the end, you know, I think there's, there's right. nothing like, I just love thinking about performance. I love building education, uh, you know, uh, around, you know, helping folks understand what these factors are, like how to think about them in the context of, of your life. And, um, you know, cause it's not, I think sometimes we can be overwhelmed thinking that, gosh, it's just all these things that, that really influence my outcomes, but it, you know, there really are core physiological uh, factors and, and core psychological needs. And if we kind of build a, a framework around that, we can really start to, uh, you know, ha have age agency over our, our, our levels of performance. Right. And so how long did you end up working with those two PhD students? For about three years. Uh, and then after that, I ended up starting my own business and I stopped working at the University of Iowa and I started coaching on the U.S. team. I was head coach of the U19 national team. So really started getting into coaching at, uh, at the U.S. level and ended up moving back to the East Coast from Iowa and yeah, ran, started a business that I ended up actually running for you know, over a decade. Uh, it was a, a camp and clinic uh, business where we did uh, tons of coaches education and, you know, field hockey was the, the sport. And we did uh, the call, the whole framework was we would come, we did, you know, we had 18 different camps and clinics running nationwide. And we would basically bring the coaching staff to the the city and you know marketed and have kids come and we would also provide free coaching education for any of the area coaches um, and really the goal was to expose uh, these athletes to the best possible field hockey coaching and that because that was definitely a, a real gap in in the U.S. was you know we have lots of different pockets where field hockey exists but there wasn't really the the knowledge or the or the experience to get athletes, uh, you know, to, to the, you know, to that next level. And so that's right. really what the, the goal of the, of the, the business was. So, yeah, so I ended up building a, a huge, pretty huge business had, you know, other, you know, hundreds of subcontractors, uh, you know, some of the best players in the country and in the world would, would work at the, at the camp. And, uh, we developed a huge curriculum and, uh, you know, just provided tons of coaches education. So it was really, I guess the, I really credit those early years for just providing me the repetitions I needed to, you know, to, to, to teach, uh, to do coaches education, certainly in the, in the area of field hockey, but also built in a performance education piece as well. Um, you know, this concept that you've got a whole athlete, you know, you can't just be 
yeah, you have to be really knowledgeable about the technical and tactical aspects, but there's also some overarching principles that you can apply from a physiological and psychological perspective that will really help you round out uh, your uh, your coaching and, and kind of help you provide an experience that, uh, you know, will best position the athlete to, to you know, to, to thrive in, in the environment. Uh, and yeah, so that was, that was great. And then after, after launching that business, um, and, and running that for a few years, that's when I got a call from Princeton university, um, asking if I would apply for that job. So I ended up applying and interviewing and getting that job. So then I, I was able to keep the business going though, which is great. Uh, you know, while I was coaching, there's a lot of, uh, nice, compliment to, to to coaching having exposure to all these kids from across the country and yeah, yeah. influence them so it's a good little recruiting pipeline but <laughs> um but yeah that's that's when i headed down to princeton and started coaching down there interesting yeah so it must have been i guess really really cool for you as you're going down this path of really digging deep and exploring all aspects involved with performance science while also having I guess, a way or an ability to directly apply that through, through your coaching must've been, must've been great. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think it's just a, a nice advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that it's when you, when you set off to, to coach and, and I think this is where I think the U S is a little bit behind some other countries in that you can't become a coach at a, at a, a you know, youth all the way through national level without an education (laughs) (laughs) of of how to actually teach. Like, I I think we hire coaches in the U S without that, you know, you just maybe happen to be a a good player. You've been maybe exposed to good coaches, but that doesn't automatically make you a good coach. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, whereas other countries have these really robust, you know, you have to go through, you know, quite a bit of coaches education, you know, the technical tactical aspects of your sport, but then you also have to have these, you know, broad overarching knowledge of, of how to think about your sport in, in the context of the physiology and the psychology, you know, you, you can't get hired without an education. And I, and I think in the U S we don't really have that as much kind of criteria or a standardized process for, for hiring. But that said, um, I, I definitely kind of adopted this viewpoint that, it's my responsibility to to come to the table with you know a really kind of a broader overview of of what actually is required for a student athlete to thrive in my environment and it certainly is not just the 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 physical and and uh you know technical aspect of of my sport right there's there's way more involved to being i think a good coach and 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 being able to provide uh you know a a winning experience and uh you know one that takes in to consideration the the whole person. Um, so I think for me, having that viewpoint going in was, was definitely an advantage because a, a lot of my colleagues, um, you know, were just didn't necessarily have, I think that, that full picture, um, frankly. So, <laughs> right. And so where, where do you see a lot of coaches miss the mark when it comes to working with their athletes? Well, I th- I think the focus is is just on the game, you know. Where whereas that that's just a, a medium, right? I, I think our our goal as educators in a collegiate environment is, you know, very much to give the student athlete the the tools to be successful in life, 
and, and, and a lot of that, of course, comes through just the, the teaching and learning and just being a part of a team and all of the components that are associated with that. But I think the other big responsibility is, is providing student athletes a, a framework to really understand, you know, what are the, you know, what are the choices that are actually going to influence my, my ability to do all the things that I want to do in my life. You know, if I were to write down, you know, what my goals are and, and, you know, what are the things that I actually value and what's important to me, what, you know, what gets me up in the morning, you know, helping student athletes understand that, that these are the things that we need to think about in order to, you know, set our, our behaviors up in a, in a way that's going to enable them to achieve all the things that they want to achieve. So I, I think sometimes there isn't a, a process to help student athletes develop a, a framework that is going to enable them to really achieve it, uh, all the things that they want to and really thrive in the environment. It's just kind of a, a more of like, a, you know, just a, a bit, a bit too much guesswork, I guess, um, as opposed to like a, a real education. Right, right. What do you enjoy most about coaching? Definitely, I mean, the interaction with the student athletes was amazing. You know, I, I had the fortune of, you know, being surrounded by just incredible young women who were, you know, so bright and um, so motivated, you know, to, 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 to be successful and, you know, had broad interests, you know, beyond just, you know, the sport, obviously they'd come to Princeton with their musicians, they were, uh, you know, artists, they were scientists, you know, they, they you know, they, they really came to the table with um, just lots of, of interest, which made uh, the environment so, so fun and uh, interesting and, you know, dynamic. So, yeah, I think I just appreciated just being able to be inside their lives and 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 see them be successful and 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 watch them achieve the things that they wanted to achieve over the course of their four years and um, and then now you know seeing them in in their lives and just uh, you know having a ton of uh, just seeing them you know be so joyful and have so so much energy and uh, you know and passion for the things that they're doing is uh, yeah it's it's very satisfying so so definitely just the interactions and, and just being, you know, able to be a part of their lives was, uh, was spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, um, how are you able to make or Princeton field hockey, one of the most successful teams in the history of Ivy league sports? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think the, the focus on the performance science side, you know, we are able to integrate, uh, a, a lot of different information to kind of quantify aspects of performance that I, I think other folks weren't thinking about yet. So we had just data, um, whether it was, you know, video, you know, analytics coming from video um, or, you know, the, the physiological data coming through, um, you know, heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, epoch, you know, we were measuring all sorts of things that no one else was really measuring yet. Mm -hmm. So we were collecting a, a lot of data that uh, allowed us to make uh, objective decisions, you know, in a, in a sport that is, uh, you know, anytime you've, you know, you've got a, a fluid game, there are just a lot of variables that are hard to wrestle to the ground. So I, th I think we're able to uh, create a, a, pretty uh, objective framework around certain aspects of the sport that helped inform our decisions, helped us prioritize our time. Um, is that I think it's really about 
okay, if you have a two hour block of, of time, you know, what are you doing in that two hour, two hour block? How are you prioritizing your efforts? Um, and, and how is that two hour block then informing the, the rest of the day? So I think we were able to, to be really efficient uh, in the sense that we, we knew what to focus on you know, from a, a physiological and kind of technical and tactical side, just with all the, the technology that we were able to deploy in the, in the background, really without our athletes even being aware of it, but it, that very much informed our, our processes and, and how we spent our time as, as a staff. So when we arrived at the field, you know, there, there's really not one moment wasted and I, and I would say that that was probably the, the biggest differentiator between what we did um, and what made us successful in the Ivy League is we weren't complaining about the fact that we could only practice for two hours, for example. And when our competitors outside the Ivy League were practicing for four hours, I think a lot of my colleagues spent their time trying to get the rule changed. And I was like, okay, no, we'll, we'll work within this two hours. We'll make this into an advantage. So all the constraints that existed in an Ivy League environment, really to protect the students, you know, protect their academic experience, which is 100% the right thing. Right. Um, how, you know, I, I think I just learned how to how to turn, flip that on its head, and, and create that, make that to an advantage. Um, you know, we use that as a recruiting advantage. You know what? When you come to Princeton, we're, you're going to have a two-hour block during the season where we're going to practice. Um, you know, other teams are going to be, you know, have you out on the field for four to five hours, or other schools, uh, non-Ivy League schools, are going to have you out on the field for four to five hours you know, doing God knows what, but you know what, we're, we're going to find a way to be successful and compete uh, nationally uh, with this constraint. And that just means it's, it's my job to come prepared. There's two hours is a, is a, is a shit ton of time, right? If you're, if you're, if you're focused on the right things. So I, I guess I just became acutely aware of, all right, what are these other things? What are these other factors that are really going to influence that two hour block. And, you know, a lot of it was just coming to from, you know, my athletes coming to the field with capacity. What, what does that actually look like? You know, what does the infrastructure look like to help them understand that if we only have two hours, what do you need to do the other 22 hours that are going to help you show up with as much physical and mental capacity as possible to make that two hours as great as it can be. So I think they, they, my athletes recognize that I was so respectful and conscientious of their time that they took the onus on themselves to, to ensure that they were being conscientious and respectful of the other 22 hours. You know, and I think that was really probably like the, the biggest factor that enabled us to sustain, you know, such a, a, a degree of success over such a long period of time was I think that that respect, my respect for their time and knowing that, you know, whenever they came to a meeting, whenever they came to a practice, I was going to be 100% buttoned up. Um, not a moment was going to be wasted. And, you know, I would have them in and out of there with, with quality. And then and when they rocked up to a game and they stepped on the field, they knew that there's no other team that we we're going to compete against who would be more prepared than we were. Um, and, I, you know, I think when I think back to the 13 years of, of coaching, I think we only lost four games where, you know, to a team that was, you know, less quality or, or as equally talented, you know, I think we really to create a, a margin for error that accounted for a lot of the vagaries that, you know, you know, lead to, you know, a loss, for example, against uh, uh, a, a talent, a more talented or less talented uh, opponent, you know, we see underperformance all the time, right. And it's, it's usually because you, the infrastructure in place is set up in a way that um, they don't know how to 
think about the opposition in a, in a way that allows sustained levels of performance. So we, we kind of just thought about all of these like peripheral things that um, I think most folks don't, but that actually influence performance over time. So I, I think we, right. we had to wrestle the ground. Yeah. in a really, really strong way. Yeah. Yeah. Shifting gears here a little, how did you get, how'd you ultimately get the opportunity to work at Whoop? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, we're using a lot of technology. So I was exposed uh, before it was, you know, kind of trying, I think I was, I want to say maybe one of the first collegiate coaches to, to uh, apply heart rate variability, um, you know, to, to, to training and to, to use that measure as a, as a way to inform, uh, you know, volume and intensity and, and kind of what we did on a daily basis. So I was, very much in tune with just this opportunity that uh, some of these these biomarkers could provide in terms of understanding capacity, and uh, I, I actually started building uh, kind of the Whoop Dopplinger. Um, I raised money at Princeton, and uh, or I started a, a business uh, called Actus, and and the the whole concept was to you know build an application that kind of wrestled to the ground, you know the the fundamental behaviors related to physiology and, and psychology that would influence performance and then find a way to layer in some quantification so people kind of understood how they were uh, trending and, and tracking in, in short term, but over, over time. And so I hired uh, some folks in computational biology and statistics machine learning, and we started building some algorithms, um, you know, related to sleep, nutrition, and recovery. And, uh, and I was giving a, a lecture at Princeton on just quantification and the opportunity, you know, kind of the future of, of technology and performance. And a gentleman came down from the stands and he was, and he said, have you met Will Ahmed? And I said, no. And he's like, oh, he's the, the kind of founder CEO of, of a company called Whoop. And they're doing, uh, they're doing pretty much the same thing as, as you. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So in, in that moment, I, I ended up getting connected to, to Will. We met in New York city and, uh, and it was, you know, just a, an unbelievable meeting, so much synergy and loved what they were doing. Uh, you know, they, they were just so far ahead in terms of, you know, they are, they had a hardware, they had hardware. I was just pulling in from a, I just had a Fitbit and we were, you know, kind of, we were connected to their API and pulling, sorry about that, uh, pulling, you know, heart rate data and, you know, extracting the, our intervals and, and, you know, kind of modeling, a recovery score off of that. And so, you know, not having hardware would just, I realized very quickly that I was so far behind whoop, I was never going to catch up. <laughs> and, um, and since I couldn't beat them, I would just join them. But, but yeah, I was, I was really just interested in, in technology as a way to foster human performance and super excited about just that space in general. Felt like we were just scratching the surface. And I just, I, when I went up to Boston, I guess for my, my interview, I thought we were just exchanging ideas, but um, it turned up, I ended, Will ended up asking, uh, offering me a job when I was up there, but, um, you know, just getting to meet, you know, the, the data science team, analytics, you know, the software, hardware, engineering, you know, it was just such a, a incredible group of, of human beings. And, and I was just think the absolute world of, of Will and his vision and the whole mission. So yeah, I just decided to just give it a go, um, and, uh, and, and pivot and, and get into the technology world. Wow, that's uh, that's great. And um, I guess for the people listening, um, maybe just briefly touch on 
what heart rate variability is and, and why it's important to, I guess, optimizing performance? Yeah, it's the single best estimator of physical and mental wellness. So it's a function of the heart, uh, heart rate variability, but it, it originates in the autonomic nervous system. And it basically, your autonomic nervous system has two branches, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, and they are both competing to send signals to your heart. Okay, so when you are uh, highly recovered and responsive to the demands of your environment, your heart will be responsive to both signals of the branches of, of the autonomic nerve, nervous system equally as well. Okay, so that would be in, in that would yield a higher heart rate variability, more variability, uh, and and really it's the the time heart variability is the is the kind of measurement of time between heartbeats. The more variability between heartbeats, uh, the more responsive your body is going, your mind and body will be to the demands of your environment. So the, and that will yield a higher, if you're more recovered, you'll have more variability uh, between heartbeats. And that will okay. enable you, enable your heart to be responsive to both um, uh, branches of the autonomic nervous system. So it's a little, it's a little complicated, but I mm -hmm. think at a, at a high level, if you just understand that, you know, your lifestyle, um, you know, the type of sl the sleep you get, the hydration, nutrition, how you exercise, how you manage, um, you know, exercise intensity and, and how you buffer stress during the day, all of those things are going to manifest in your autonomic nervous system. And, and, if, if you do all those things well, um, you'll create a scenario where your heart is responsive to, to both branches of that autonomic nervous system, which will enable you to be able to respond and adapt to your environment in an optimal way. Right, right. Got it. And I guess also for the people listening, provide a brief overview of, of WHOOP would be great. Yeah. So WHOOP is, uh, it, it, we, it's a wrist-worn device, so, uh, but we don't have any display. So it's literally just like a bracelet that you wear on, on your wrist 24-7. And it's collecting just tons of, it's collecting, uh, you know, sampling 52 hertz. Uh, so 52 times a second, we're sampling heart rate data um, that we then transform into insights uh, into how your body is responding and adapting to external stress. Uh, and our core mission is to unlock human performance. We want to help you understand what your body is trying to tell you. Uh, Will always says, you know, the secrets that your body is, is trying to tell you. Um, that's what Whoop unlocks for, for our members. It, it really gives you insight into, you know, how you're building cardiovascular load, you know, what training and non-training stress is, is doing to you. And based on what it's doing to you, we tell you how much you need to, how your recovery is. So you have what your capacity to take on strain is. Um, and again, that's very much influenced by, you know, all the behaviors that you engage in across the day is going to determine your, um, your, your capacity uh, tomorrow. And that's something we quantify for our members. And then we also do a, uh, a deep dive into sleep. So we really help our members understand uh, their sleep architecture, how much time they're spending uh, in bed, and then of that time they're spending in bed, what does the quality look like? So, you know, we spoke about earlier, just, you know, what are the things that we need to think about? You know, those are three 
core things that if, mm -hmm. if you understand, you know, how, if you could build a framework around those, those three things, you'll, you know, pretty much everything in life will correct itself. Right. And how is, how is whoop different? Like, how do you differentiate yourselves from the other fitness wearables out there? Yeah. So I think it, we have kind of more real estate. So, you know, beefier resolution, better firmware, um, we're computationally like way more complex. Uh, I think some of the smaller devices, um, they just can't compete with that. Um, and because we're not doing, you know, like I, I think uh, Fitbit is maybe what folks would relate to the most because we're not displaying anything. We're literally just collecting data and all this data gets pushed into, you know, a mobile application that you can then that's then visualized all this data for you in a really elegant, you know, app. Um, because we're not, you know, displaying anything, we're, we're not driving our, those sensors hard. So, um, or, or we're not uh, burning our, our kind of battery down or, or we're not, you know, not sampling heart rate because we're displaying time. Like we're literally sampling heart rate, you know, 52 Hertz. So, um, we're able to, uh, drive our, our sensors really, really hard, um, and, and be able to give you a super accurate, uh, very detailed understanding of exactly what your body's doing. Interesting. Okay. So, I so accuracy, I think is, mm -hmm. is one of the biggest. And then, and just the IP that we have around our, our algorithms that, translate this raw data that we're collecting into and give you in and give you insight into um you know the the behaviors that you need to to ad adopt in order to position yourself um to to really unlock your performance levels so i think that's the the biggest those are the biggest differences right and so like if you were to go on a run or like ride your bike, let's say, since there isn't a display, like do you, does it still track like that you ran say three miles or? It, is... it does. Yeah. And we actually have an integration with Strava so you can get really, really detailed. Um, oh, cool. Okay. That. But yeah, all you have to do is just turn on your location setting and you can track your, your run. Yep. So all that gets mapped and, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, you're, you're not, and you can use your phone for real time heart rate data if, if you want to see that in real time. And we also have this super cool feature called the strain coach, which tells you, uh, you know, how much more you can work out and at what rate in, in order to, uh, you know, meet, or so you don't kind of uh, take on too much load relative to your capacity. So it kind of keeps you in this, you know, functional uh, training zone. Interesting. Okay. So what does your day-to-day -day job look like at Whoop? Yeah. So I drive thought leadership in, in research. And so a lot of my day-to-day uh, -day is around uh, working with uh, research partners to uh, help us better understand how we can apply Whoop data in everyday life. So an example of that would be we have a research, uh, we have a, a study going on with Stanford University, and we're looking at breathing protocols during the day, and not only how they buffer daytime stress, but also how they might influence sleep architecture at, at night. So the goal is to take this study and be able to tell members, okay, if you do, you know, here are four different breathing protocols, these are the, this is the influence they have on 
you know, buffering daytime stress. These are the influences they have on sleep architecture. So we can help members understand what behaviors most strongly correlate to, you know, positive outcomes in, you know, in terms of the metrics that we track. So that would be, that's a lot of my work it revolves around that. And then I do a ton of work on, um, uh, education. So, you know, I'll do, I do a lot of the podcasts, uh, with, my uh, my colleague Emily Capitolupo, who's our, our vice president of data science and research, um, so we work together a lot on um, on the education side, so helping folks understand, you know, sleep and you know the various aspects of sleep and how that influences performance, um, as well as you know training and um, and also how to think about recovery factors that influence recovery how to optimize recovery. So we do a, a lot of that work as well. Um, and then a lot of writing for our locker post to kind of, again, help folks be able to understand how, how some of this, uh, uh, how, how the behaviors can kind of, um, what behaviors they can focus on to really help them, you know, optimize sleep recovery and, um, and build cardiovascular load in, in a way that meets their training intent. It sounds like an amazing job. <laughs> It's, it's fun. It's very fun. Yes. I love yeah. it. It's a dream job. Yeah. Yeah. That's just kind of like a, a testament to kind of, if you just kind of do what you love and kind of, this is just what you do. It's funny how these opportunities can just kind of come up. I think that's so true. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think we, I think what's cool is I think that way of thinking is becoming way more prevalent uh, or people realize that, that that's the path to kind of fulfillment and contentment is, you know, just really uh, pursuing the things that you love to think about and then just kind of creating a, a job or, you know, just a, a cadence to your day that allows you to really, um, you know, have an outlet really for the things that you love to think about and care about and value. So yeah, I think that's, that's definitely how I've always thought about my life just generally. And, um, and that helps me make decisions. You know, I think my choice to go to whoop was exactly that exercise, you know, was, all right. I mean, I, I didn't, I had no reason to leave Princeton. Uh, you know, I, it was, it was, uh, you know, an awesome experience. We were winning, uh, you know, I had the best, the best recruiting classes lined up, uh, you know, and, and I think that the evidence is they've been to the final four multiple times since I've left. So um, cupboards were not bare. Uh, you know, we were, had a great team. So there's really no reason to leave Princeton. But I did recognize, you know, as I took stock in the things that I wanted to be thinking about and, and problems I wanted to solve, I realized that it was very much on, um, you know, this side of, of technology and, and really just being able to dig super deep into this world and, and, um, and have an opportunity to, to, to meet folks outside of Princeton. You know, I, I love the idea that this job afforded me to, to go inside all different types of high performance environments, um, integrating technologies in, in these, these, you know, across different sports and, and, you know, corporations, surgical teams, you know, just being able to get inside all these different high performance environments has been an unbelievable opportunity, learning opportunity, uh, and and I and it's given me, I think, a, a pretty unique perspective that, you know, not many folks in the world have as it relates to technology integration, um, you know, and in, internal load specifically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, how do you go about optimizing your own performance? Like, what does your daily routine look like, and and all of that? 
Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I've definitely had the benefit of using data to, to hone in on, on what, what really works for me, but I, I'm very consistent with my sleep-wake timing, <laughs> so I, I go to bed and wake up at a, you know pretty much the same time every day. So that that's kind of the core habit that I think creates a, an amazing downstream effect and, and influences all my other behaviors. So sleep-wake timing, uh, you know, so I wake up roughly you know 6:15. It used to be 5:20ish pre-pandemic, but um, with Corona, I seem to wake up somewhere between you know 6:10 and 6:30. Um, I will uh, do about 10 to 15 minutes of meditation. I use the Waking Up app by Sam Harris, which is my favorite uh, app of 2020. It's just amazing. So I use his guided meditations and um, I'll do about 10 to 15 minutes of that. Uh, and then I'll, uh, I get out in the sunshine. Uh, so uh, that will usually come before my meditation or I do my meditation outside. Uh, and then I'll fire up some coffee and I will uh, do some writing and reading, set up my day. I recently got this journal. It's called the Full Focus Planner. Um, I'm, on page, I'm on page 145 right now. So I've been, I've had it for a little bit, uh, about a quarter, I guess. Uh, I got it early April and it's been amazing. So I kind of mm. get into that and just figure out, you know, my priorities for the day and what other tasks I have to have to accomplish. And, um, and then, uh, and then I usually just set off on my work day and, and then I'll work out. So I used to work out in the morning, you know, again, pre COVID, but, um, but now I work out generally in the afternoon. So I get, I get it pretty early. So I, I do from like seven thirty to, you know, nine uh, b before most people have started their work day, I have, I've already had a, you know, almost an hour and a half of, of work. So I kind of take that hour and a half block and I free up some time in the afternoon and that's when I'll work out and uh, take many breaks throughout the day. Uh, I definitely am uh, all about, you know, buffering stress as, as I go through the day. So building in just, you know, 90 seconds to two minutes of, of diaphragmic breathing. Uh, uh, I do that you know, again, three or four times a day uh, at different points of the day. And then, you know, I start to wind down around six and I usually go for, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a prepared dinner uh, and then go for a walk after dinner, uh, make some tea when I come back, have some sort of recovery drink, hang out with my family. Uh, I'll do maybe get in the Norbitech boots, depending on what my workout was that day and what I have for tomorrow. Uh, and then, yeah, I start winding down at eight 30. So that's kind of my typical day. <laughs> awesome. And then, uh, as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? That's such a great question. Um, I think, I think just really, trying to build my awareness um of what what actually what are the things that i want to think about what do i care about and how do i set up my life so i have really clear outlets for the things that i say i care about so i think i think for me that's that's really been this pursuit of 
of of uh, awareness has has really been my my driving force i would say mm-hmm. like a bit of self-awareness right and then lastly here before we wrap up what advice or parting words of wisdom around optimizing performance would you like to leave the people listening i think the most important thing to get right is is your sleep and it sounds so basic but i i think we often look for the magic bullet when the the magic bullet actually is optimized to sleep. So <laughs> it, it's worth every amount of money you have because the the fact is that the the less you sleep and the less quality your sleep is, the quicker you will die. And there's a mountain of scientific evidence to to support that statement. So I would just really urge people. Uh, and and I haven't always you know I, it's really just been about twelve years where I've I've been hyper-focused on, on my sleep. So it hasn't been something I've, I've understood or, or known about my entire life. So I had to, I had to really build a skill around, around sleep and, and sleep is a skill. There's no question about it. And uh, it, it's something that you have to, to, to focus on and, and, and understand, you know, what, what your sleep actually looks like, you know, what, what is your sweet spot? So I think digging into to sleep and really understanding it, reading about it, figuring out how you can make it as as great as 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 it can be is 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 I think probably the best advice I could I could give anyone because um, it is frankly insufficient sleep is is the root cause to all mortality. Uh, so if if it, you know I, I said earlier about just life correcting itself, I, I think if you have sleep as your foundation, it's it's it allows you to build you know a, a great exercise protocol. It allows you to build a, a good, uh, you know, nutrition protocol. But if you, if you don't have sleep, right, you end up layering inefficiency on top of inefficiency. So there's nothing more important in your life than to, to figure out the sleep piece and then, um, build your life around that. Awesome. That's a, that's a great place to, to end it. Kristen, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Chase. Thank you so much. Is LinkedIn the best place for people to go to get in touch with you or if they want to connect with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Um, and then I put out a lot of content on Instagram and that's Kristen underscore Holmes 2126. And yeah, those are the, the two platforms that I, I, I operate on mostly. Awesome. And you can also visit, visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time.